you want to be here to be crowd control or uh, don't bring any weapons, but you know, be ready to do a little bit of fighting. <laughs> Sometimes you get you get uh, 75 kids who are completely hopped up on sugar. I mean, they get here on empty stomachs and just start consuming candies in mass quantities. So it's a it's it's a tiring couple of hours, but uh, we certainly could use your help. I'm not trying to talk you out of it. I'm trying to talk you into it. <laughs> help us out with that. We will have a hay ride too, so that'll, that should be an added bonus there. So join us if you can for that. It'd be a blessing. And I, I'll share another blessing. I, I was uh, just thinking today of uh, the up, you saw the white flurries today and thought, you know, whenever I see snow, I think of all the shoveling. We have a lot of sidewalk out here. And then I hear Pastor Forsberg wants to lose weight. And now this works out because if he just shovels, that takes care of my problem and his. So praise the Lord for that, brother. Both of us have got to help now. Amen. <laughs> well, you didn't say anything about your heart. You said about your weight. We're focusing on that. Philippians chapter 1 is where we're at tonight. Philippians chapter 1. And... Uh, as we finish <coughs> the first chapter of Philippians tonight, it's our responsibility as Christians to become like Christ in every area of our lives. Uh, this sounds like a pretty lofty goal, and it is, uh, but it is possible, really it's only possible by His working through us and in us. Uh, many religions, actually, I'd say I guess all religions, uh, focus on outward transformation. Uh, where they focus on the changing the outside of a man, but Christ in us enables us to change from within. And when Christ dwells in us, his presence is understood, his presence is obeyed, uh, we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, then the outside will soon conform uh, to his will uh, too. So, And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. So look at verse number 27. We'll start there uh, in uh, Philippians chapter 1. The Bible says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. That's an interesting I hope we have time to talk about that a little bit, that evident token tonight. That's an interesting concept there. Verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, now here uh, to be in me. So uh, let's uh, look at these verses, unpack them tonight, and hopefully be a help to us as we go to prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that you give us, and, and I'm so grateful for each of these Precious folk that are here tonight, I pray you'd help us to be, to be blessed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the Christian life, if we're trying to live it, we know is a life of continuous action. I mean, it's continuous effort. Uh, the Greek verbs, and I'm no, no Greek scholar. As a friend of mine said, I know a little Hebrew and a little Greek. One runs a laundry, one runs a restaurant. But uh, the Greek verbs are a lot more descriptive than uh, English verbs are. In fact, I, I hear that about many languages, that English is really a little more drab than some other languages are, but uh, Greek verbs especially are, there's a tense in Greek that's called continuous action. 
for instance, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, uh, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and that's a continuous action verb, which essentially is saying are passed and continue to be passing away. And behold, all things are become and continue to be becoming new. That's a continuous action verb. Now, it'd be nice if all of our sinful habits in our life were gone like that when we got saved, wouldn't it? It may be great, uh, make life a lot easier for us. If our our uh, addictions, and when I say addictions, it goes far beyond drugs. I'm talking about addiction to anger, addiction to whatever we, we uh, find ourselves addicted to. Probably every one of us have some kind of addiction we deal with. Uh, the Bible calls it a besetting sin. And so uh, those things, if, if we could have them removed, how wonderful that would be, but that's not the case. We know that's not the case. But it is wonderful to know that through the process of sanctification, the old is passing away. It should constantly be more passing away than it was passed away yesterday or last year. And we are continually becoming new. Now, Ephesians 2.10 puts it this way. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So are you letting Christ work you? Are you allowing him to make you his workmanship? Paul urges us through this passage here to be unyielding, undivided, and unafraid in the battle against the enemies of Christ. We're going to look at those three tonight. Uh, Be unyielding, undivided, and unafraid. Let's start with unyielding, verse 27. (coughs) Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. It is through our conduct the way that we act, the way that we talk, that people uh, are going to know us and judge us to be what we are. Now, not not to ruin a future message I'm working on, but do you know what the most often quoted verse in the world is? It's not, we would think maybe John 3.16. It is not John 3.16. It used to be John 3.16, but it is not John 3.16 anymore. Now it is Matthew 7.1. Judge not, lest you be judged. The world loves that verse. Judge not, judge not. I'm gay, judge not. Uh, You know, whatever you want to plug in there. So you shouldn't judge. Well, first of all, nowhere in the Bible does it say that we shouldn't judge uh, except in the wrong way. You have to look that in context. Secondly, every one of us judge. We all judge. Okay, if your daughter is babysitting for someone, if you have a daughter, teenage daughter, I have a teenage daughter, if my daughter's babysitting for someone and hears a noise at the door, looks through the peephole and sees a guy with a ski mask and a crowbar outside trying to get in, I want her to judge him. I mean, we make sense, right? Let's not open the door for the guy. Uh, we judge all the time. It's, it's ridiculous to say, judge not. Uh, well, ju- people judge us all the time too. By our conduct, how we live, while we talk, people judge us. And it's just a, it's a judgment call that's a very natural thing. Now, our conduct reveals the content in us. What's in the well comes up in the bucket. Uh, what we have inside will soon be apparent on the outside of our lives. Our testimony on the outside, and listen to this, because it's a very, very strong statement, and it's something for us to consider, that our testimony that we put forth is either going to draw people toward Christ or push people away from Christ. That's a pretty strong thing to think about, isn't it? That's a serious thing to think about. 
Am I drawing people or pushing people away? <coughs> people often use the statement, well, God knows my heart, and he certainly does. But the same verse that people use to, God looks on the inside, the outside doesn't matter crowd, uh, so they'll use that verse. The very same verse reminds us that people can only see the outside. I'll read it to you, First Samuel 16, 7. The Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the ins or on the outside, but the Lord uh, looketh on the heart. What does it say? Before the Lord looketh on the heart, man looketh on the outside. Is it important what they see? I say it is, yes. A testimony is important. Standards are important. The way that we carry ourselves is important. And so as people watch your conduct, are they interested in what makes you different? Paul says only let your conversation, your uh, now, now we look at that word as lifestyle, and we can apply it that way. But I want to look; it, it's different because the are interesting. The original uh, word that's translated conversation actually means to be a citizen, or a citizen, or to behave as a citizen. I find that interesting because what Paul is writing <coughs> to these folks here, the Philippian Christians, like us, were citizens of two different worlds. They are citizens of Rome, or they were. We are citizens of America. Uh, we are also are citizens of that better country that's spoken about in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, they are citizens there. And these two worlds then and now, they are at war all the time. Uh, what we believe uh, that the Bible teaches, how we're trying to live our life, how we're trying to raise our family, is in direct contrast to the world that we live in. Just turn on the news and you'll see all you need to see to, to support that fact. We don't live in a world that supports our value system. And so they're constantly at war. The Christian has a heavenly citizenship that needs to take priority over our human citizenship. It's in interesting that way back in the days he wrote this letter and the days we live in now. It's hard for powers that be to accept, a hard fact for them to accept. Despite the fact that Christians' heavenly citizenships make them better earthly citizens. Have you ever noticed that? Why would you want to fight a Christian as the government, you know? And yet the government, one of the, one of the well, it's, it's one of the main, uh, one of the only groups in, the, in, the, in America today that it doesn't matter if you offend. You can say anything you want about a Christian. You take any other group you got to be careful what you say, and you got to, uh, you know. And I'm not a, saying that we shouldn't be, but Christians are open game. They can say whatever they want. We're not protected, and it's interesting that a government would uh, would would come down hard on Christians. We're better. We're better human citizens. We're better neighbors. We're better workers. Well, we ought to be. I think for the most part, Christians are. In Roman society, in a Roman society like Philippi was, this was a serious issue here. It led to formal persecution. There was a lot of persecution there. In fact, remember the first visit Paul made, he was persecuted. And so from the birth at, uh, of the church at Philippi, it started in the midst of persecution. Paul preaches, meets the people, starts to gather them together, <clears throat> and he gets beaten, thrown in jail with si uh, Silas. And it was there that Paul had to resort to his Roman citizenship just to protect himself. His heavenly citizenship did not annul his human citizenship, because, and it neither, neither does it do that to ours, because we, uh, even though we're not of the world, we still are in the world. So we still have to function in our 
human forms and we have to live our lives and we live in a worldly society. We still have to function. I understand that. But our heavenly citizenship is what he's talking about here. So let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. We ought to live like Christians live. All right? Not like the society around us lives. The line is drawn very clearly in many countries today, communist countries, Hindu countries, Islamic, uh, not so clearly here in America, thank God, but, uh, I mean, we're still allowed to get together and, and worship and have church and those things. Uh, but sometimes the world wears a friendly mask, like in our country, for instance. I wonder how, you know, somebody made a statement not long ago that, that I've thought about a lot, that uh, popularity has hurt the church more than than persecution ever did. Think about that. As we are, as it's in vogue, kind of still in this Christian nation of ours to be a part of a church somewhere, uh, that that's uh, the popularity of the church has diluted it, where persecution purifies it. John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. I appreciate Jeremy even sends me messages all throughout the week, and, and <clears throat> I listen to a lot, of, a lot of preaching through the week, and I just heard a message this morning, uh, or yesterday morning, unloved preachers. And it, was a, it was a great reminder that preachers in the Bible, if they preached the truth, were not loved. They were thrown in lion's den. They were sawed asunder. They were killed. They were murdered. They were run out of the country. They were hunted like dogs, like Elijah was with Ahab. Uh, these, the prophets and the preachers, uh, the preacher of all preachers was crucified. The forerunner to that preacher was beheaded. I mean, the preachers have never, that preach the truth, they're not popular in the world. And so Jesus is saying this, you're not of the world. I've chosen you out of the world, not part of this. So 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then uh, the book of James calls uh, people that hobnob with the word adulterers. You adulterers and adulteresses. Knowing ye not that, uh, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Well, these are serious things when we become so worldly-minded. So we must determine, as Paul says here, to stand for the word of God. Uh, live as becometh the gospel of Christ. Live like a heavenly citizen, is what he's saying there. Whenever I think of our role as Christians <coughs> in this world, or often I, I think about the moon. The moon does not shine in and of itself. But sometimes it looks really bright. Just last week we had, I think it was last week, it was a full moon. Love stepping out in the yard when the moon's full. Especially, I don't know why it looks brighter if it's cold. Maybe it's just me, but I think it seems to be brighter. And uh, love to see, but the moon's not shining, the moon's reflecting. The moon's reflecting the, the sun, like we are to reflect the S-O-N, sun. We're to be his reflectors in the world. Now, what happens during a lunar eclipse? Because a lot of Christians live the lives of lunar eclipses. What happens in a lunar eclipse is you have the moon, you have the sun, or the sun, well, I don't know which is which, but we have the moon and the sun, and the earth comes right in between them to where the light of the sun cannot reach the moon, and that's called a lunar eclipse. How many times do we allow the world to come in between us and the sun, S-O-N? And we live lunar eclipse lives. We, 
we allow ourselves, our testimony to be blocked out. We allow our, our, uh, our, our witness to be blocked out by worldly things. And so, <clears throat> love not the world, he said. God commands us, Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men. They may see your good works. Ephesians 5, 8, walk as children of light. <clears throat> so Paul urges the people of God to be unyielding to the enemy be unyielding in battle. And then secondly, to be undivided in battle. Look at verse 27 again. That whether I come and see you, this is the second part of the verse, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now this is the first hint that there's a problem in the Philippian church here. Later, Paul's going to name names. He doesn't pull any punches. He's writing this letter. One of the purposes is for unity in this church. He, but he urges them here to strive for unity in the Spirit. The things that unite us are far more important than, the, than personality clashes that divide us. And so we ought to have a, a mission that, that God has passed on down to our church to reach lost and dying around us and edify the saints that meet. And so, But Satan's strategy has always been to divide and to conquer. So division has always been his strategy. <clears throat> I, I don't like math, never have, don't like math. So once my kids, we homeschool, and once they pass about, the second grade, I can no longer, <laughs> I can no longer help with the math in there. So my wife has to do that. But uh, thankfully, I have a son-in-law who's a genius in math now. But I, I'm not, I'm not good at math. As a history, I was teaching history for, in high school for I don't know three years. I taught history in our Christian school we had back in Michigan, and, and I was asked by the students because they loved my answer. Are we ever going to use algebra in the real world? I said never. You'll never use math. Math is a waste of time. And the math teacher had always. She was kind of defensive about math, so she would be very upset uh, that I would stop telling my students they won't use what I'm teaching them. But I don't like math. I just never have. Uh, but I do know this. You can get higher numbers by multiplying than you can by adding. I know that much. That's about all I know. But I know that much. And God was obviously doing an amazing work here in these churches, or the early church, I like how Acts, it starts out, they were added to the church, and then the next chapter, they were multiplied. It started with division, but they started multiplying. And so, as they're multiplied, but while God adds and multiplies, Satan, Satan's also a master mathematician, like God is. God's a master mathematician. He adds and multiplies. Satan divides. He works on divisions, so the devil opposes God's work on every angle of it, every side. So he just seeks to destroy all that is being accomplished. Any forward movement in your Christian life, the devil is going to try to get in your way and stop you. I was talking last night. We had some great visits last night. And, uh, well, and, and not only last night, had some this week as well, throughout this week. But just excuses, excuses. I just... See, I wish you know, they'd have a season for where you could just, every time you hear an excuse, you could slap them. I, I don't want to slap people, but it would be nice once in a while. Give me an excuse. Psh, this doesn't work. Try again. Uh, we just, I can't come to church because of this. I can't become church because of that. Or I can't, you know, I won't, you know, I, I've had, I had a, not long ago, I had an 80, 83-year-old man. I know I need to get saved, and I will one day. 
Like you are, you know, one foot in the grave, one on the other on a banana peel. You're about to go, brother. You need to get, you need to think about it right now. And, and people have excuses. And so um, Satan's doing that, though. He wants to stop any of that forward movement, uh, spiritually speaking. So he does this by bringing division. And so this is what Paul is talking about here. You got to stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together. Because the devil rarely, rarely do you see church division, anything connected to doctrine. Rarely do you see that. I, I, most of the time when there's church problems, people don't approach with an open Bible. They approach with hurt feelings. They approach with uh, whatever, a, a, a misnomer or something they heard or something they perceive. It's not doctrinal thing. And so the reason that Satan doesn't often use doctrinal positions to divide, I believe, is because we can point right to the Bible and see it. And so it's hard to argue the word of God. And if we are Bible Baptist church, we're going to follow the Bible. Amen. So we're not, he doesn't really work as much on a doctrine as to you were mean to me. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. And then just gets de degrades from there. And, uh, you know, that's how Satan divides. Church problems arise from false accusation, from gossip, from insinuation, from uh, selfishness, and from self-centeredness. All these things, uh, and these are personal issues. They're not doctrinal issues. But are they, they're just as harmful as doctrinal issues, in my opinion, because they still cause division. When these issues arise, who gets hurt? Well, obviously, people within the body get hurt, but ultimately, the people we're supposed to reach get hurt as well. And so the, the bigger, the cause of Christ gets hurt when we allow divisions. That's why Paul is right in the same verses, live uh, as is becoming to the gospel of Christ. Connected to that. Don't, you, you got to strive together. You got to be as one. I, I've used this story before, but I love this story. The, the, the New York family that wanted to start a ranch out west. So uh, friends visited after they were out there for, for a while. Friends uh, visited them, and, and uh, so they were talking. They asked the ranch's name, and the, the, the would-be rancher said, I, I wanted to name the ranch the Bar J. My wife wanted to call it the Susie Q. My son wanted to call it the Flying W. And my other son wanted to call it the Lazy Y. And so uh, they asked, well, what did you end up naming it? Well, so we couldn't figure it out, so we called it the Bar J Susie Q Flying W Lazy Y. So where are all your cattle? None of them survived the branding. And uh, that's, uh, you know, if, if, we, if we have these inner turmoils and we try to please people, work these things out, and what, what happens is we kill the cattle, you understand? I mean, we, we, uh, we kill what we're here to do. And so we can't allow divisions. We can't allow uh, these, these, the, the devil to get his foot in the door. Like, that's a silly story, but the moral is clear. We've got to focus not on the problems. Uh, you know, we, we don't allow these personal problems to grow within the body or souls suffer. You know, the work suffers. Paul's concern was that the saints in Philippi would unite in getting the gospel out, getting the work of God done. He wanted to hear that they were standing fast. He wanted to hear that they had a common cause and that they were battling with a single mind for the faith of the gospel. 
By the way, there are too many real adversaries for us to become each other's adversaries. Amen? There's enough adversaries out there that, that we need to band together for that. There's too much to be done for Christ for Christians to get bent out of shape in non-essentials. We need, to, we need to just get busy in the work of God. John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So, now, and then also unafraid <coughs> in the battle. Unafraid in the battle. Look at the opposition that they faced here in verse 28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Paul says, don't be scared of the opposition. Do not let them damper your commitment. It is, I, I love this t phrase here, an evident token of perdition. So <clears throat> their opposition to you is their own condemnation, is what Paul's saying here. It's an evidence. Your courage in the face of persecution is a symbol to your enemies of the perdition that awaits them. I'll give you an example. Remember the story of when Jesus was being crucified? The darkness fell, the thunder clapped. You remember one of the uh, one of the legionnaires, whatever, I can't think, centurions, one of the centurions. Remember he took off his helmets? Truly this was the Son of God. Well, why did he say that? I mean, some things were happening, but I think it was more because of how Jesus was responding to what was happening to him. How, how would it affect you? I'm not trying to uh, be... Uh, overly dramatic, but how would it affect you if you're hammering a nail through somebody's wrist and they're begging God to, they're asking God to forgive you? I mean, that would be a little unsettling, I would think. You kind of expect to be cursed out and yelled at and screamed and spit on, but here's somebody praying for your soul while you're hammering the, them to a cross. Uh, certainly it made an impact on that man, how Jesus responded. And so Paul's saying here that their opposition to you, this type of persecution, that's Proof of their own condemnation, and they see it. Now, this call of courage has been observed down through the centuries by thousands. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Don't read it before supper, but read it in little segments. It's a disturbing book. Have you ever? I don't know if you ever read that, but that's a disturbing book. Makes you feel like the biggest wimp in the world when you read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Mothers who who yell at their kids, "Don't you dare cry out! Don't you dare recant!" While they see them torn apart. Uh, because of their faith. It's, it's just it's astounding what people have went through. The worst of secular humankind is seen in the persecution of believers. People that wouldn't, that are against the death penalty for a mass murderer persecute believers. Can you, I just don't get it, that Christians would be, well, I do, because Satan's behind it all. But uh, So we have an opportunity uh, here, the opposition that they faced and the opportunity they faced. Look at what the opportunity is. <clears throat> but to you of salvation and to that of God and that of God. To the persecutors, the bravery of believers was a witness to their own coming punishment, is what that verse says. And then to the believers, the bravery, the bravery of the believers was a witness to genuine and victorious salvation. The blood of martyrs. Somebody said, turned into the seed of the church. It grew and blossomed in persecution. Uh, we read of brave unbelievers who die, uh, I mean, they die like a man, and many unbelievers have died bravely in war and battle in different situations, but <clears throat> they might die with defiance and anger 
in the face of their executioners, but the bravery of these Christians was different. Read some of them. The history of many, Polycarp and many of those others who died at the stake, burning, and while they're burning, they're singing hymns to, of the faith. They're praying for those around them. Uh, as a Christian, that made a, made a difference. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me that Paul's thinking of Stephen's face when he's writing this. Remember, Paul was standing there watching as Stephen was being stoned. and Imagine the impact it had on those around him when Stephen, all of a sudden, in the middle of the stoning, sees the heavenly Father, Jesus, standing on his right hand. Whether you believe him or not, it would have made an impact. And so uh, Paul is, uh, is encouraging us to be uh, strong there. Verse 29, Unto you it is given on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Why does God allow persecution to arise? <coughs> Why does it seem that God is silent while his people are being persecuted? Why do the righteous suffer while the wicked triumph? These were questions they were dealing with here in, in the Philippi church. That's a hard one to answer, maybe. I'm sure that Philippi pastor would get those type of questions. Uh, these are questions that haunt people. Paul's answer to all those questions is Christ. Did you know that not only did God stand aside uh, and let people be persecuted sometimes, and, and, and it seems like he's not intervening, he also stood by in Gethsemane while his son uh, bled and died on a cross. Jesus cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But what happened because of Jesus' death on the cross? Our salvation. Now, we can't point and see what good persecution does. If I'm, if I'm being burned at the stake, it's hard for me to say, boy, I don't know how, but this is going to turn out for the good. You know, I mean, we don't, it's hard for us to see that, but we certainly can look at Christ's death and see that it certainly benefited us, didn't it? And so that's Paul's answer. Hey, you're, you're suffering with Christ. Out of Christ's agony came a salvation that's available to all of mankind. So Paul could look at the suffering for the cause of Christ as a blessing. Look at, look at the language in verse 29. For it is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, yay, believe in him, and also, hallelujah, suffer for his sake. He's looking at it. It's presented as a blessing, not a curse. To Paul, it was not a prospect to be avoided at all costs. It's a privilege to be embraced, suffering for his sake, persecuted. Suffering for Christ's sake was a gift to God, not given to everyone. Look what he says, for unto you is given. So they're in an area where they're being persecuted. Hey, you guys are special. You get to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. That's kind of what this verse is saying in essence. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to our human mind. But uh, as though it's some great benefit to be granted by God. I read at the Nicene Council. This is an important church meeting held in the 4th century A.D. There were 318 delegates at this council. And uh, fewer than 12 people were not either missing limbs or eyes or tongues because of uh, torture for their faith. Less than 12 out of 318. <clears throat> Can't imagine. We're spoiled in our nation. Now, are you going through some trials? Guess what? You're in good company. You're in good company. Uh, people have suffered for Christ for many years. You've joined the fraternity of suffering with Christ himself. That's what Paul's putting us together. We're suffering with him. Matthew 5, 10 to 12. This is a hard one for our flesh to accept. Blessed. That word blessed in Matthew uh, 5, the Beatitudes, means happy. Happy. So blessed or happy 
are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. I mean, does that make sense? Uh, while you're being beaten, of course it's not pleasant. But remember when the, when the apostles got beaten and thrown in jail and the next morning when they were released, they left rejoicing that they could suffer for Jesus' sake. Rejoicing. That's a spiritual maturity there. And so uh, Paul is encouraging us here to uh, be faithful. And then look at Paul's example, uh, verse number 30. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. The natural question, Paul's basically, you know, look, I'm suffering. Stay faithful like I have. The natural question I have when I read things like this is what about you? What about me? If push came to shove, if persecution arrived, would you be faithful to death? Have you ever thought that or questioned yourself in that area? I mean, would you be able to, like that girl at Columbine, I did have that happen in our nation, a, a shotgun right on her head. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And he blew her brains out when she said yes. I mean, are we able, are we willing to stand for Christ to the death? Now, we do need to keep this in mind. God gives grace as needed. So dying grace is for dying, not for living. And did you know God never asks us to die for him? He asks us to live for him. That's what we are supposed to do. Our sacrifice is to be one of a godly life. Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's what he wants from us. He wants us to live for him. So in that, I think, is our answer to the would you question, would I question. If we're not living for him, we certainly wouldn't die for him. The question then is, are you living for him? Are you sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he your number one priority? Is he the one that comes first in your life? Is he the relationship that's before your husband, your wife, your children? Everyone takes a second seat to him. By the way, you'll be a better husband, wife, and child if he's first. Is he first in, in your priorities? So if he isn't, then probably dying for him wouldn't happen either. Paul was suffering persecution as he wrote this letter. He encourages others, what you see in me, the same you do as well. The truth is that there are people even here tonight and many more in our church that aren't here tonight. Some aren't able to be. I was talking to a man yesterday, comes every Sunday, but he absolutely he is in so much pain, there's no way he can get out in the evenings. Suffering. And I know some of you are in daily pain all day and there's suffering going on. Uh, and my heart goes out to you, but can I encourage you that there will be more than compensated uh, in, in, in time to come for our suffering today. I heard this story D.L. Moody gave about a Christian woman uh, who had a, just a beautiful spirit, cheerful, optimistic, although she was confined to her room, uh, too ill to ever leave. She lived in an attic apartment on the fifth floor of an old building, couldn't afford any more. A friend decided to visit her one day and brings along one of her friends, which is a wealthy, uh, well-to-do lady. So there was no elevator in the building, so they began the long climb upward. When she got to the second floor, this well-to-do woman commented, what a dark and filthy place. Her friend said, it's better higher up. When they get to the third floor, she again comments about, what a, just a dank place this is. And her friend again said, it's, it's better higher up. They kept on going up floor by floor. They finally reached the attic apartment, and again, uh, it was uh, not 
near to, she just couldn't believe the, the squalor that this woman lived in. And, and finally, she said, it must be very difficult for you to live in a place like this in your situation. And this shut-in Christian lady again says it's better higher up. And I tell you, you know, if we get discouraged, that's an encouraging thing for us to remember. We might be in pain, we might be in suffering, might even go through some persecution here, but it's better higher up. That's where we're going. We better get our eye on that distant country not built by hands and whose maker is God. So let's remember that as we go through some of these things. That's Paul's encouragement this evening. Father.